Our text this morning is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We turn to James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. That's found on page 1,289 of your pew Bibles. Before we read from God's word, let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you ready and anticipating the reading of your word, your perfect word to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us and open our hearts, that we would be receptive, ready to hear, that you would let what would be said today be the true interpretation of your word, and that we would be blessed in hearing it. And in these things, we pray our, our highest goal, that you would be glorified that you would receive thanksgiving, that you would receive praise, and that you would receive people more devoted to you through the reading of your word and through you strengthening our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy. One who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. We're going to read those last two verses again, verses 12 and 13, where James brings the whole thought of this passage together and applies it. Beginning in verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs. Over judgment. Ascends the reading of God's law. Not God's law, God's word. Getting tongue tied this morning, I think. People of God, you've likely heard the expression to open Pandora's box. What is that? What is this story? It's a mythological Greek artifact. This box, it was originally a jar that changed into a box and it held such things as sickness, death, and many other evils. Pandora was a Greek woman who succumbed to the curiosity, opening the jar, which then released all these horrors on the world. 
Thus, to open Pandora's box has been known to start something that will cause many unforeseen problems. A simple curious activity, a simple activity that opened a jar that poured forth all these unintended consequences, all these problems. We could maybe update the, the point of that story and say it's opening a can of worms. That's the story of Pandora. But what we have before us today is something similar because we are probably prone to think of the sin of favoritism or partiality as a very small matter. Something very minor, perhaps, maybe before this, this day, never something we thought was a sin itself. And yet James shows what this sin is and, and how it is a Pandora's box to be opened. That it isn't something insignificant, it isn't something so light But it exposes, in fact, what is anti-gospel, what is anti-law. To show no love, to show favoritism, to judge others, to stand over the law as a judge, to stand over a neighbor and to count them unworthy and to stand next to another and to count them worthy according to criteria God himself doesn't use. James is such a practical book. Such a practical book to address what is this common, everyday scenario and situation. How we treat others. How we think about them. How we judge them. And that's what James is doing. Is doing. He's showing this problem of, of favoritism, of partiality. To act in favoritism is to display the opposite, the character of Christ. It's to show a lack of love to neighbor based upon faulty pride. It's to behave in a way that Christ never did and in fact despised. And as we read in verses 12 and 13, specifically verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And so James reveals in that very verse what's at the center of this is our own showing of mercy. Our own willingness to be merciful to others and to govern all things, our thoughts, our actions and activity with others in a merciful way, a gospel way. James continues his argument from verse, from chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, when he had talked about what is true religion, what's a worthwhile religion, and he had said that it's to visit the widows, it's to support the orphans, and he was giving that example of it's inactivity that we show our heart. True religion is not a religion that's merely heard, but one that is lived and done. It bears its fruit. That's biblical language. What is a, a good vine will produce good fruit. What is a bad vine will produce bad fruit. And so if we are to be Christians that are part of the vine grafted into Christ, we as a church, we as individuals are to produce fruit. And that's what James is saying, but he's dealing with a situation that was altogether unfruitful in the churches. Altogether dangerous and destructive, and we look at our first point this morning: the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. What is partiality? I've been using the term favoritism, and that that gets at it. But we'll define what partiality itself is. Partiality is an unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another. An unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another. This is very close to the original meaning that James has here. 
The Greek word that he uses had the idea of judging according to the face. Judging according to the face of something. You see it, and there's the snap judgment. And that's, that can be bad enough when we see situations and circumstances in life, when we make those snap judgments. It's far worse when we make judgments of people. It's far worse when a church conducts themselves in that way. And that's why James gives us this everyday example, easy to apply. What would we do? Let's, let's update it. What would we do here today? If someone was to come in, let's, let's, let's say there are people, right? There are people. They're, you know, they're a young family, and they're dressed well. They've got many young kids, and they're, they're well-behaved. And they come in, and they, and they got their van. We love vans, right? They pull up in their van, and, and out spills their troop of kids. And, and here they come, and we roll out the red carpet. Come on, and we come, and we, we welcome them. And that's good. We should welcome them. And, and then in the other door comes someone else. Someone who perhaps has the look, maybe in our minds, of an unsavory sort. Not dressed so well. Perhaps rather smelly. Perhaps awkward. Oh, let's, let's avoid that person. Let's, let's walk there. Oh, there, there's my family. I'm going to go over there. There's my friend. Maybe we can muster up a hello as we pass by. Well, we're updating the example. What has been done? Now, what's not wrong is being welcoming to all. That's what James wants. What's wrong is to, to go and devote all of our attention, to show all of, all of our honor on the ones that we've seen and, they, and, and judged them to be our own people or judged them, and this is really where James is getting at, judged them as to be those who can help us prosper, who might increase our own worldly standing. I was trying to update our James's illustration with this family. James is, is, is meaning to, as well, this, this wealthy person. This person who, who, in that ancient context, would walk in and you would know this person had standing and power. This person had wealth. And so you go up and you just fall over this person and, and sit here and have the best place in the house. And, oh, have you heard that we have snacks? I'll save you a place in line so that you can get everything and the best of all we have to offer before someone else. And you tell that, that unsavory person that you've judged too quickly, you can go stand at the back of the line. Maybe there'll be something there. Is this really so bad? To do this, to operate this way. In fact, wouldn't this be good business? Wouldn't the world say, yeah, devote your resources to the, to the person who obviously can help? To that person who obviously can increase maybe your own honor. Or increase the honor of the church as a whole. Let's devote all of our attention to that. James reveals the sad reality that we have mortgaged away the gospel. We who preach a gospel message of mercy and salvation and love have then just acted in a way entirely unloving, entirely unmerciful, and in fact, as James shows, not even the way God does, according to standards that God doesn't use. If we're going to continue with that illustration, God... God does not judge our hearts according to the clothes we wear or the smell we might have or the, or the wealth 
that we possess, or whether we drive a van or something else. That's not how God judges. God judges the poor in spirit. God looks to those who he shows mercy, who need the gospel, who respond, who are humble. Those are the ones that the gospel goes to. Those are the ones that God calls. Now, what James isn't doing, James isn't saying to do the reverse. It's not as if we, as God's people, should treat the wealthy person with dishonor to honor the poor man. That's not what James is saying. James is saying, treat all with mercy. Don't treat one better than someone else. Don't judge one inferior or worthless off of the face of the matter, off of their their appearance alone. The whole of Scripture helps us interpret this. James is also not sanctioning rudeness or unconcern for what people are. James is not saying we couldn't show honor to the president if he came here. Or even to give him a, a, a honorable seat in the house. We're honoring an office. The Bible doesn't speak about that. that you, the Bible doesn't, doesn't put that down to honor those in authority. We, in fact, are called to honor those in authority. The Bible isn't asking us to treat all without distinction. For example, the Bible, and it would be biblical for us to offer the seat of a young person to one who is elderly. That's in respect of elders. It would be God-glorifying for a man to open the door for a woman, to show that respect for a woman. That is giving glory to God. James is not saying obliterate distinctions, but to conduct yourselves with godly honor, with godly mercy. And that's what he would have done here, where we don't say to the one, you're our person and here's our blessings that we can give to you and to the other we neglect. Verses 4 and 5, James says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And then notice this, become judges with evil thoughts. You might think, well, that's not what I've done, but isn't it? When we operate according to who we're going to show our, our hospitality to, our welcome to, is it the people that we like? And is it only them? And have in that we not judged others as inferior and insignificant. It isn't wrong to have a close group of friends. It's wrong when we have a clique. That's the difference. It's wrong when we're just content to maintain what we have, never welcome in, not show that love. And then in verse 5, James continues, Listen, my beloved brothers, and again, notice that, beloved brothers, even as he is scolding them and, and warning them of this, he is still calling them beloved brothers. This is the congregation. He says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love them? James is saying, Are you not actually operating contrary to the way God has declared? That's his, his reason. He gives two here, and that's the first one. James is showing that their behavior is foolish when they despise the poor for the sake of the rich first, because they are literally casting down those whom God exalts. 
They reproach those God honors. Listen to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 is a prophetic call of the Messiah and and declaring what he would do when he comes. It gives a, a summary of his very mission in the world, and it's this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. What a group of people he's highlighting. Poor and captives and brokenhearted and grievers and prisoners, mourners. Now, we're not... Proclaiming some gospel that says it's all about the poor, it's only about the poor, that's the most significant. It's not what the gospel says here. But God has indeed come in a special way to deliver that news to the poor. As the gospels would say, the poor in spirit, and according to God's good providence, the poor in spirit are often those who are mirrored by the poor reality of their own literal situation. Was it not Christ who said, That's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? There have always been rich men who God saves. There have always been rich men and women of great fruitfulness in the church and for the good of the church. But the reality is it's more common for the rich of the world to reject and scorn the gospel than to accept it. God has done this for a purpose. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And in God's own justice, he has determined to come and bring this good news to those who have been oppressed. Now again, it's not exclusive. We can't make the mistake of thinking James is condemning wealth here. He isn't. He's condemning such a spirit that judges worldly wealth and something God counts as insignificant to be the significant factor. Where we'll show mercy and we'll show honor to them and not someone else. The gospel subverts and mocks the powerful of the world. God certainly pours forth his grace on the rich and poor alike, yet God's will is to prefer that the mighty might learn not to flatter themselves and that they might ascribe all that they are to the mercy of God in meekness and humility. James says that God has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith. Those blessed in God are those who are poor in spirit, who according to God's design are often the lowest of society, where their poor physical reality mirrors that meek and humble faith. And that's what verse 5 is getting at. They're, they're the heirs of the kingdom. Those who receive the promise of God are those who are loved by God. So the first reason James gives to show how this behavior of the church is wrong is because it doesn't prize those whom God does. This is what he reveals. And so when God's people act the opposite way, are they really showing God's love? The second reason James gives to explain how partiality is flawed is the very experience of the church. You can see that in verses 6 through 7. This likely gives us a little window into the context of the church. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Likely in their own situation, they were experiencing the, the persecutions of the wealthy. And, they, and then when someone from that category would come to the church, that's when they would devote all their attention there. Now we're trying to read behind the lines a little bit. This is We can't say this definitively, but it's quite possible that James has heard from other local, whatever, elders, pastors, whoever were in the midst, maybe just congregants, of these type of problems in these dispersed churches. And so he's addressing that. He's saying, what you're doing here is not good. They're the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called. Well, what's the honorable name by which are they called? It's Christ. They're called by the name of Christ. We're called by the name of Christ. We're his bride. And just as when a couple gets married, they change, the wife changes her name and accepts her husband's name, she becomes his family. She takes his identity in that sense. Well, we have done the same with Christ. We bear Christ's name, the honorable name by which we are called. And so how we act bears on Christ. Calvin has a helpful quote of all of this. He says, There are certainly some for the rich who are just and meek and hate all unrighteousness, but few of them are to be found. James mentions what is most common and what daily experiences show. For as men commonly exercise their power in doing what is wrong, it happens that the more power one has, the worse he is, and the more unjust towards his neighbors. So James is saying you are treating those who are abusing and blaspheming the name of Christ with more honor than the poor who fill your church. Showing favoritism and partiality. That's our first point. Our second point is sin and the law of Pandora's box. This is verses 8 through 13. James continues his topic of partiality but shows the magnitude of sin. Showing the magnitude of sin. He tells Christians in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Well, that's good. If you really fulfill that law and show love to your neighbor, that's what you ought to be doing. But that isn't what they're doing. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted, convict, convicted by the law as transgressors. That is what they're doing. Being convicted as a transgressor. And so here's where the real Pandora's box come. This isn't some light thing. I, I just showed a little favoritism. Is that so bad? And James is saying, you've broken the whole law. We like to reserve the true transgressions for those big things. The ones he even mentions, adultery and murder. Well, to do that, well, that's breaking the whole law. Is it really breaking the whole law to show a little bit of partiality, just a little favoritism? Is that loving your neighbor? To show a little unlove to some. Broke the whole law. Summarizing that word to love. And we failed. I don't know if any of you have experience with tempered glass. Tempered glass is very strong. It can fill a, a void and a space, a door or a window, and you can throw a rock or a ball at it, and it'll just bounce off. It just hits it. It's strong. And yet, if you remove the glass or you're able to get to the edge of it and you just tap it, it shatters into a million pieces. 
That solid pain that seems so strong and so large, you take the corner and you ding it a little bit and it's gone. And that's the law. That's how strict law-keeping has to be to prove righteous before God. That's how strict the law still is. That means when we show a little partiality, we are breaking the whole law yet again. And it was just that little thing, but just like that glass, you hit it, and it's, it's gone. It's not like there's a little crack. It's not like it can still be used and still functioning. The space, the window, the door is now open. There's nothing there. The law is connected. And so to break the law in any way is to break it all. It's also because there's one lawgiver. One lawgiver where the law is a representation of his very character and attributes. And so to break that is to go against him, is to deny him. Breaks the whole thing. Partiality is the very opposite of the law. It's a Pandora's box. Though certain sins can still be classified as greater. James isn't saying all sins are equal in their degree of breaking the law. There is a punishment coming. There is judgment coming. And there are degrees of punishment and degrees of blessing in, the, in his coming. But any sin breaks the whole law, and any sin warrants damnation. James isn't putting every law as if it's, it's just as bad, for example, to harm someone with your words as opposed to literally killing them. No, it is worse to kill them, but both are still murder. It's bad to lust. It's worse to commit adultery, but both break the law. Both transgress it. That's the box that is open, spilling forth all these unintended consequences. And that's exactly what's happened with partiality. You see how James has masterfully taken what that church, what his churches may have considered to be so minor, what he's done to reveal that it isn't minor. What they're doing, they have undermined the gospel message in their behavior and in their words. Verse 12 shows where James has been leading them. He gives that application, which we reread, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. That's where he's getting at. He's getting at an application. He's teaching them these things. He wants them to act a certain way in Christian maturity, in the love of Christ. And he says, speak and act as those judged under the mercy of Christ. This shows the, the true abhorrence of showing partiality when Christians do that. You have been forgiven all despite the fact that you were the most unsavory, smelly, worst person that could be there. The one to be shown dishonor instead of honor. And Jesus honored you and saved you. Can we then turn around and dishonor someone and show no mercy? To think that one's not worthy. Or I'm just not going to waste my time there. Good thing God didn't do that to us. Not going to waste my time with that one. Not going to waste my time with that one who still sins, shows favoritism, murders in his heart, lusts with his eyes, gluttonous with his mouth. All these sins we all do so frequently. 
And God doesn't just say, now you sit there by my feet. But elevates us into the most honorable positions the kingdom has to offer. James is saying, you can't do the same in your own assembly. You can't do the same in your own life. Impartiality, you've judged someone to have worth by appearance alone, but Christ did not judge us according to that. Can we not speak and act as those who received the mercy of Christ? Who didn't experience judgment, but instead that law of liberty? The law of liberty is God's law, the giving of us the freedom and experience of not crushing us, but, but fulfilling it in Christ. We are to show the same. And the last sentence of our text says it, mercy triumphs over judgment. That word has the meaning to boast. Really, they're saying mercy boasts over judgment. What is that saying? It's it's mercy's better. At the end of the day, for God's people, mercy wins out. And when we show partiality, when we show favoritism to anyone, and this doesn't just need to be applied solely to a church context, but to our family, our interactions with others, when we show that we have created ourselves to be judges, we have set up a new law. But as James says, mercy is better than the law. So engage in mercy, it's triumphant, it boasts over judgment itself. Here's the answer to racism, to nationalism, to feminism, to sexism, to classism, all those things that are ripping our world apart. What's the answer? The gospel mercy of Christ. And it's not then to respond and say, yes, we're going to take a side and say that this this race is better than another, or that, yes, chauvinism is the right answer, or that there are classes who, who deserve better honor. That's not it. It's not to approve of what they do. It's to bring the gospel to them with no favoritism of some over others. It's to recognize that we all need the same mercy and the same gospel, and we are not proud and judging of others as if we're superior for having received what we did nothing to receive. That we can stand in judgment. This is why this is the answer. Can we stand in judgment of any of these things, even those we disagree with, and say we're better? We can't. We acknowledge what they need is the same thing. same law of liberty, the same answer of Christ. So how are we doing with this? Do we think and act in a way James is condemning? Do we avoid the awkward person? Do we avoid those who we are perhaps a little uncomfortable with? That's not to say that we don't function in wisdom. It's not to say we're safe in how we evangelize. But it's getting our heart in the right place. Do we pray for those who we most despise? I could say it this way. Do we pray for those on the other side of the aisle? Do we show mercy to those who are confused about their gender, have that wrong? Or to those whose sexuality is all abhorrent? And we can say that. We can say that that activity is. But do we love them? 
I'm applying it further than what James is doing exactly in his text. But you see how the application is warranted. Are we placing ourselves as judges who are superior over someone else? Or are we placing ourselves as those who want to hang on the coattails of another to prosper our own worldly standing instead of functioning according to the gospel, instead of being willing to take a hit in the worldly sense and not maybe bag that wealthy person and get him to come to the church, not because we dishonored him, but because we also honored someone else, because we weren't ready to fall all over him and give him an honorable position that wasn't warranted, but in fact showed love to all. Are we, t- are we willing to take that hit? These are all questions that the the text implies. How are we to people who come to our church? How are people integrated to our church? Are they welcome? Do they experience love? What would be someone's experience, and this is helpful to think of this, what would be someone's experience who's never been to a church ever and walked in our doors? Now, the, the whole practice would be alien to them. The words... What we're doing, the prayers, the singing, a sermon, all this would be completely alien. But would they walk away having experienced the hard end of favoritism or have experienced a merciful group who in humility knew exactly what they needed was what they themselves had received, the gospel mercy, the love of Christ. People will believe the doctrine of the church when they're loved. People will believe the goods we're selling them when they're loved, when we actually are sincere and show that concern. Perhaps we show partiality, not always according to riches, but we do count as significant in the church what God doesn't. Do we show favoritism for looks and money and intelligence and humor? Those are the qualities that we honor when God is saying that that isn't what I honor. I honor the broken, poor spirit. Many churches have been ripped apart in a pursuit of appearance, of money and intelligence. Favoritism is a Pandora's box, and I dare say one of the greatest damages that has ever been done in the church and to Christ's name is when Christians have shown partiality. Favoritism, judgmental spirit, wholly foreign to what we are as redeemed in Christ. So treat, as James says, all with the mercy of Christ. Speak and act as those judged by Christ. Let us not show the worst form of partiality because we're tempted to judge others as we meet as not worth our time. Let's hear that reprimand from James, but also that ending sentence, that mercy triumphs over judgment. To go to our merciful God and ask that we would not show such a proud spirit, that we would be meek and humble and loving to all we meet. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise your great name. We praise you as the God who does show love and has loved your people, has saved us who deserved to be sentenced to to death, to hell. We pray that we would show that love to others, to show that love to those who need the same mercy that we have received, and may we show it to them. 
May we do that as a church, as our own congregation. May those who enter and come here be welcomed. May we show forth that love and keep the law in that way. We pray that we would show it in our own homes and to our own children and to our own families and extended families and workplace. That we would be those not considered as a, a judgmental person. That we would be those known as not subsisting only in a clique. That we would be those who are ready always to show mercy and love and to do that properly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.